Welcome to Fright Day Presents A Conversation With. This is Kelly, and this week for our Brew Original series, I sat down for a great conversation with a longtime friend of Fright Day, the founder of Small Town Monsters, Seth Breedlove. Small Town Monsters is an independent production company with some incredible documentary films and series about all sorts of strange things. Their latest project, On the Trail of Bigfoot, is unlike anything they've ever done before. Here is a conversation with Seth Breedlove. Seth, thank you so much for joining us today from your balmy weather in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Are you in Ohio right now? Yeah, mm-hmm. I'm in my I'm in my office, which by the way, I should probably have said this before we started. There's a giant clock outside my window cuz I'm in downtown. Occasionally the clock starts playing songs that go on for like a minute and a half, so just just FYI. That's fantastic. I think that will mm-hmm. probably be the best part of the interview to be honest. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Seth, we've known you for a while and we love what you do with Small Town Monsters. But for those of our listeners who do not know all about Small Town Monsters, can you give us a little bit of background? You're a bit of an interesting perspective because in simple terms, you're a bit more of a skeptic. So Uh, yeah, uh, Small Town Monsters is an independent production company that makes films and uh, episodic content focused on like urban, urban legends, folktale, folklore, cryptozoology ufology, supernatural stories centered around rural communities around the country. We've been doing this for almost five years this summer. Wow. And it is entirely independent. We fund everything we do each year through a Kickstarter campaign that runs at the beginning of the year. And then that funds everything that we do throughout the year. Our projects are available on multiple platforms like Amazon Prime and that kind of thing. And yeah, I'm not, I don't, I'm skeptical. I don't refer to myself as a skeptic. I know, but no skeptics do. So that makes sense. Right, right. (laughs) And obviously, it's perspective of a hardcore believer like myself. One of my favorite things about your most recent series on the trail of Bigfoot is your skeptic shell seems to be falling away a bit. More on that to come. (laughs) Tell us why were you so interested in this idea of cryptids, small town monsters to begin with? Uh, You know, like I so I have this defect in me where when I get into a subject of any kind, I can't just be an observer. I have to be a participant. It goes all the way to like comic books. I wrote comic books because I was a comic book fan and I apparently it extends to like movies and podcasts and and also paranormal so I got into the subject of Bigfoot back in probably around 2005 mostly by accident um, but after kind of you know gaining a modest interest in the subject I I was actually turned on to a lady that lived uh, in the town I had grown up in who had supposedly been having like Bigfoot encounters for like two decades down down in Bolivar where I grew up Bolivar Ohio she lived on this stretch of road outside of Bolivar which is a tiny tiny town in the middle of nowhere in northeast Ohio she lived back on this back road and claimed that her and her children had been, you know, seeing Bigfoot for quite some time and that they just basically accepted that these things were real and that they were there, you know, like it was way beyond any Bigfoot stories I was aware of. Like her kids backed her up on everything and they would claim that they followed these things on horseback in the woods and that they knew they lived in the caves behind their house. They lived on property that butted up against this massive section of, you know, probably thousands of acres that were privately owned that were at one time strip mines. So there are caves back there and that kind of thing. But she claimed they live in these caves. So I started driving around the roads down there. I started talking to people that lived on those back roads and they would tell me about a rash of Bigfoot sightings that had started in the 70s. 
apparently when these sightings were going on, people were finding animals, livestock, deer and stuff like ripped in half and stuffed Ugh. up in trees. Ugh. I thought that was really interesting. And it turned out that that had actually been happening even more recently, like around the time that I was asking these questions to people. So that got me really excited because I thought maybe there's a chance that these things are real and that they're down here. So I started driving those roads at all hours of the day and night trying to see something for myself. And I never did. But that's where everything started. Which is interesting because you made a number of documentary films before starting your On the Trail of series. But this On the Trail of Bigfoot starts out with exactly the story that you just told us, right? About this woman and her family that saw these yeah. Bigfoots. Is it Bigfoots or Big Feet? I think it's Bigfoot. Just making sure. I don't think there's an official way you can put that, though, because I know people say Big Feet. Uh, there's people that say Big Feets. And Ooh, then there's also right. people who just call them Bigfoot. Like it's sort of the plural is... Like moose and moose. Know, moose and moose. Yeah, mm, exactly. I could get down with that one. Okay. Mm-hmm. What converted you in terms of doing these documentaries, which have been fabulous, Beast of Boggy Creek, Invasion at Chestnut Ridge, and then you decide to move into On the Trail of, which began with On the Trail of Champ last year. Mm-hmm. Tell us what's different about the On the Trail of series. Uh, it's, it's more, uh, cinema verite or like news shooter style. And it, it kind of is a way for me to return to the very raw, um, very flawed style that, that STM, you know, sort of started out with on Minerva Monster and Beast of Whitehall, where it was basically just me with a camera shooting, you know, what whatever was in front of me and uh, really quick setups and that kind of thing. The, the movies have really transformed over time, especially the more, you know, the more and more we add members of the crew and things like that, the more cinematic we're trying to make them. Right, um, right. So they're almost like this blend of actual documentary with something like horror film. It's just supposed to be much more stylized and cinematic than this is. And even like Terror in the Skies, we hired a sound designer on Terror in the Skies, so it's going to have, oh, wow. you know, it's, it's even going to push things further in in that direction. But uh, I just wanted to brag about that sound designer no, thing. That's actually, totally fair. I'm really, you, I'm really excited office, about that. Is your office located in Hollywood, though? I don't know if you can really brag that much. It's yeah, downtown. that's true. Downtown. True. Okay. Downtown. It's right on the Sunset Boulevard. Um, <laughs> on the trail of is just supposed to be much more about, you know, making what we we can with what we have and telling the best story and also doing it in an episodic fashion and opening it up, you know, to a much larger uh, story structure than like our films, which are usually just over an hour on the trail of Bigfoot is close to three hours long. So it's basically the length of like two or possibly three, probably three movies. I, I, I keep saying like one of the cool things about on the trail of is I think when people look back and watch are able to sort of watch each quote unquote season of it, you're going to see it sort of morph over time and find its own footing and become whatever it ends up being. I don't even think it's there yet. Like it's still evolving, but you'll actually be able to kind of track all that back to Alexander Pedagov's On the Trail of Champ because Alexander made On the Trail of Champ completely alone. He went out, shot the whole thing himself. I thought that was really cool. And actually, you and I might have even talked about that at one point, like how I thought that was such an interesting approach. Yeah, and did, so yeah. that was what I did with this one. I basically decided I'm going to do this myself. The big difference is Alexander was able to just go to Lake Champlain and shoot, you know, right. in that one geographical region. And I was all over the U.S. Yeah, Champ um, doesn't get around nearly as much as Bigfoot. No. So this was shot in like 14 different states, at least 14 different, 22 people interviewed, you know, multiple 
groups that we were out with in locations all over the U.S. You know, like ninety percent of it was shot by me. Wow. But, uh, blame blame me for some of the visuals. No, it's great. Are you? It was so much fun to watch. It also reminds me of you know some of the old school series that got me into this topic when I was little. Watching old reruns, whether it was you know Unsolved Mysteries or God, I'm trying to think some of the Byron. What are I'm trying to remember in the search the of yes, in, in search, search of. of. Was, I mean, on the trail of. You know, the title is obviously one big homage to In Search Of. But yeah, it's it definitely is not finding Bigfoot. What I'm trying to do with the series and we'll hopefully do even more with On the Trail of UFOs, we're really trying to blend like our sort of traditional storytelling and that relaying of history and and eyewitness accounts, we're trying to blend that with more of like an investigative approach. So it's not necessarily like us out in the woods doing tree knocks trying to find a Bigfoot, but we do obviously integrate that sort of right. stuff into the series. And, and going forward on the trail of will become more than just miniseries. There's like a, Ooh. we just launched the new website. It looks great, by the way. I was just checking it out yesterday. Oh, cool. Yeah. And then there's also on the trail of TV, which is like the hub for on the trail of itself. But on the small town monsters page, there's like a, I, I don't know what she has it labeled as right now. I think it's like fan page or something, but we're going to launch like a members only section of the website. Ooh. It will include like group chats and uh, Q and A's. And then one of the things that we're going to start doing uh, when we get into filming on the trail of UFOs is live investigations or like you basically be a part of us out in the field shooting oh. um, for on the trail of UFOs. And, and oh hopefully God. like I always wanted STM to be much more than like, here's a couple movies each year and here's a mini series. Like we always wanted to be, you know, more than just that. So this will be a, a step in that direction wow. to actually start doing like live content. Super interactive. That sounds Fabulous. And what's the timing looking like on that? Any idea? It, we, sh- we should be starting to shoot that in May, but it's going to be different from like on the trail of Bigfoot because uh, Shannon LeGros is going to be like our lead in that series and probably Adam Dugan as well. But um, Shannon's definitely going to be the storyteller rather than me because I really hate putting myself in front of the camera. So because of that, it'll somewhat be focused around her schedule and when we can do it. And obviously it's still very micro budget. So we'll we'll have to organize probably four or five trips that will be about a week long each that'll take place over the course of the next like year. And then Zach Palmasano who shoots our movies is actually going to be editing on the trail of UFOs rather than me. So um, I'll be, I'll be shooting it and then Zach will be editing it. Ooh, are you guys coming to Montana to investigate the great falls air force space situation it, the um stalking the herd and all that is on the list okay. so at some point i would hope that we get out to montana i just am not sure i'm not 100 percent sure when we're shooting because of momo momo t- kicks off in may momo is going to be very different not to completely change the subject no, but like fine. momo is going to be very different from what our other movies are. So it's much more centered around the narrative side of things rather than the documentary side of things. So there's like a series of actual like film shoots we're doing for Momo. And I know the first week in May, there's two huge shoots basically. Um, And then we go into actually going to Louisiana, Missouri and shooting the Momo like principal photography. Then we come back and then there's a series of shoots that'll take place over the back half of that month as well. Oh my gosh. Wow. 
Well, Byron really wants me to ask you about the connection between the Momo challenge and the Momo monster, but I'm not going to do that, Seth, just for the record. I, I have something planned. You for, should. For that. Freaking yeah. ride that train. That's ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. That, that woman does have a very creepy face. And the fact that her boobs morph so into too. chicken legs is also very creepy to me. Yeah. Yeah. So this is great. Watching the whole series, I loved that you just touched on this too, but On the Trail of Bigfoot covers a whole bunch of different perspectives. It's not necessarily one narrative that it's trying to, you know, essentially take a viewer through as a documentary might be. This is presenting a lot of different angles. One of the most interesting aspects of the whole Bigfoot situation to me has always been the camp of okay this is a physical creature versus the camp of it's an interdimensional being and we're just going to ignore the camp that doesn't think they exist because they don't count so Mm -hmm. physical ape versus interdimensional being you guys talked a little bit about both tell me what your thoughts are on those two perspectives coming out of all of the research you've done yeah, I mean, for me, the the series is literally supposed to take you through the entire history of the subject through those first three episodes, which are subtitled The Legend, and then episodes four through six are subtitled The Search. Search. And in episode four, I think we really get into, like, you know, the hypotheses for what Bigfoot might be. And, you know, obviously we can't honestly do a documentary about all those different viewpoints without ex- at least exploring that subject in some context so we go into you know the idea that people have that bigfoot uh, comes out of ufos portals don't forget the portals portals and then yeah that it's some sort of interdimensional beam or it's an alien and all that kind of stuff you know obviously i've already had some negative feedback come at me from that that the fact that we even gave a voice to that but you know like at the end of the day my my job is to document the subject and to just leave one theory out of it because i i don't agree with it would be disingenuous uh, as a documentarian but yeah i mean personally no it's a it's a freaking ape if it exists (laughs) (laughs) okay that's kind of what i figured you were gonna and honestly that's one of the things you and i can probably agree on is i'm much more in the physical camp although listening to some of the people talk in on the trail of bigfoot gave me a little bit different perspective for example i think stan gordon at one point says you know i hate to admit it but this does seem like a viable possibility. And I think watching people that are researchers of different topics and high strangeness kind of arrive at that possibility almost begrudgingly does Mm -hmm. give it a little bit of credibility because there are a lot of weird things people have seen that that would be the only feasible explanation that we have in our wheelhouse right now, at least. Yeah, I mean, I think after years of being out in the field investigating Bigfoot sightings, taking sighting reports, and maybe even spending time out in the woods like you know, the guys in the Olympic project or the night stalkers do. I think that is a common conclusion for some people to arrive at because they've essentially spent their life in pursuit of something that they never find. And rather than believe, okay, well maybe, you know, this, this is just an incredibly intelligent ape. They instead go to a place where, well, maybe it's, you know, it's going into and out of portals. The problem I have with, you know, the, the more out there paranormal Bigfoot theories is that, 
it it is a very small, tiny chunk of the reports that actually contain those elements, like right. citing reports that contain those paranormal elements. And that is something that people that do promote the paranormal hypothesis, that's something they kind of brush over. They like to find those reports, and then that's what they sort of echo over and over again is, well, you have this report here where tracks disappear into nothing, and you have this report of a Bigfoot coming out of a UFO. But they kind of gloss over the fact that it's, it's a tiny percentage of a yeah tiny percentage of reports. Yeah. I don't know. I always come back to what Don Keating says in the series when I asked him, like, how many reports in like 30 years of taking Bigfoot reports, how many did you take that actually contain some sort of, you know, paranormal element? And he said none. Right. I mean, and he took sighting reports for decades right. and investigated that kind of stuff and never took a single report himself. I, I'm not saying they don't exist and that they aren't out there because obviously I made Invasion of the Chestnut Ridge and I'm aware that these things exist. I just think it's a much smaller number than people like to, like right. to assume. And that's not to say that I get angry at people who push that theory or who believe that is, you know, the, the most viable theory because frankly, I love the stories regardless. Oh, yeah. So for me, it's it's just... If you're asking me like my own personal opinion, I think if it exists, it's an ape. Okay, well, I'm going to push you harder on the if it exists in a minute. But as you said, you've been interviewing people and in the field for years. What is the most credible story or who is the most credible witness that you've encountered? And not to say that the other people you interview and in, on the trail of are not credible, but who stands out as like, okay, this is the gold standard? Uh, are we talking specifically Bigfoot? Yes. It's probably Terry Sutton. Okay. Who we interviewed in Boggy Creek Monster. He was he was like a teenager, and he saw uh, a Bigfoot beside a pond behind his house. Yeah, you know, I I I always come back to Terry Sutton. I mean, obviously the Catons from Minerva Monster are a personal favorite of mine. But Terry, there was something very believable about Terry. I mean, the fact that I feel like Terry's spent most of his life running from that story right. was very you know a, a very believable witness to me he was kid out on this pond by himself he looks up and this creature comes walking down toward the pond sees him turns around and walks off you know that kind of affected him you know for the rest of his for the rest of his life i guess one of the things that i hear people say who haven't looked much into the topic is oh well all these people who are seeing it are, are crazy people or you know they live sure. in the backwoods and the more i look into individual eyewitness accounts the more it resonates that these people come from every walk of life i mean we've yeah got i mean will drink guinness who was in on the trail of champ one of the guys heading you know the boating expeditions he started out as like an FBI agent and he was in the woods with two FBI agents and all three of them saw a Bigfoot cross a river like you could not ask for more believable <laughs> witnesses than right you know three government law enforcement officials right but yeah I think it's uh, the type of people I don't think you can generalize Bigfoot witnesses and say that you know well they're all potheads or right. or lunatics in the forest I, I've never bought into that even when I was first getting into all of this Right. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. And I'm I'm excited to hear after you guys do on the trail of UFOs, what your thoughts are in that as well. But, you know, because you were in some areas that our, I guess, reputed as full of potheads or slightly eccentric individuals, Northern California, etc. Did you run into any people who did fit that description that were witnesses that you guys chatted with? Or were most of the people a, a bit more 
normie than that. I mean, in my years of doing this, I've certainly come across the guys who were like, dude, you can't have a sighting unless you drop acid. Right. Like, I've, <laughs> I've obviously met those people. Okay. But during the filming of this project, I cannot recall anyone who would fit that mold. I mean, the NAWAC is like the perfect example of very skilled, highly intelligent people that are claiming to see Bigfoot right. on a fa- fairly regular basis. Like Brian is, he's like a marketing genius. He owns his own marketing firm. Right. They handle like marketing for General Mills and like huge companies. He's like a very, you know, he's an entrepreneur. He's, he's a next level genius. And then Kathy is like the tribal relations manager for Stanislaus National Forest. And she's worked in national forests like most of her life. She knows her way around the woods and her husband's paramedic, you know, teaches an EMT class. And Daryl worked in military intelligence for 30 years. And before that, he was in the military. And now he works in the financial sector. Like they're not... They're not people that are like stumbling out of their trailer at 6 a.m. or 6 p.m., you know, and going into the woods with a with a pack of Miller Lite, like looking for Bigfoot. Right. And I th- <laughs> I think that is the typical sort of image that people conjure in their head when they hear like Bigfoot hunter. Right. Yeah. And there have been a lot of television shows that have furthered that viewpoint, I think. So that's one of the other reasons I'm so excited about On the Trail of. It presents a much different perspective of the people who are having these experiences. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we talked about most credible witnesses. What about the most convincing evidence that you saw? Jeez. I mean, like evidence never does much for me. Because, like, (laughs) you know, there's a billion track casts out there. I've always loved the Bossberg track, which is the one that's, like, cripple foot, where it's, it's like, this weird foot deformity it seems to have. I've always thought that one's really cool. You know, like, as far as, like, while I was filming this, someone presenting something to me, there's, I guess, the two biggest are probably the Olympic Project. And this didn't get into On the Trail of Bigfoot, but hopefully we can do some sort of, like, case file style, like, 10-minute follow-up about this because it it is really fascinating. But the Olympic Project actually found these, what they take to be nests, and they found them in the middle of nowhere in the Olympics up on the side of this mountain. There was like a handful of these hand-woven like nests basically where something had taken like leaves and sticks and all this kind of stuff and woven these things together. They found hair, sent it off to a lab for analysis Basically, the type of testing that was done on it would not necessarily give you a definitive explanation or a definitive point of origin for the species that made the nests or that the hair belonged to. This was focused on in that podcast. There was a podcast series called, I think, Wild Thing. I haven't listened to it yet. Yeah, actually, somebody sent me that to listen to, and I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I really need to. Yeah, the final episode, they go into the analysis on the hair, and they basically debunk it. But the problem is, from, from talking to members of the Olympic Project, they do not actually believe that what came back is a debunking of the evidence, and they actually believe that it furthers the idea that this could be from an unknown ape. But there's going to be more information relating to that coming out over the next couple of years. So I don't want to misspeak and say something Fair that, that I shouldn't. But I do know that there's it's very intriguing. The fact that something made these nests up on that hill where they found them and that there's multiple and that they don't belong to any known animals really intriguing. And then I guess the other would be like the tag seven from the NAWAC, which was 
we'll probably be talking about Area X, but a real quick setup for right now before okay. we go into talking about Area X okay. is that it, it, there's a group called the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. They operate solely in this place called Area X, which is a good chunk of property inside of the Wachita National Forest. And also known they, as the Valley of the Apes, just for... Yes. yes. One, one of the things they've done inside of Area X is set up these string traps all over. You know, for the most part, they're there just to kind of check on height of these things or like try to figure out which directions they're moving and things like that. But they did use the string traps to uh, sort of hold one of these wire transmitters, basically that they had attached to essentially like a burr that sticks to an animal, except it was coated in, in some sort of epoxy or something like that that can huh. only catch on to fur. So the most common thing I get asked is like, well, how did they know it wasn't a bird? It will not affix itself to a, a to feather. feathers. Um, so it has to be fur. The idea of like a squirrel running off of this are probably pretty slim. The, you know, the traps are pretty thin. A squirrel's not going to make it across one of them. And also the fact that they tracked, so something picks up this transmitter at one point and proceeds to carry it around the valley for like five or six months in a, in, a, in about an 80 mile radius around the valley and even up into the mountains and in fact what's really crazy is at one point it was like directly behind alton higgins cabin because um, his cabin is like 12 miles away from area x right. but it's a two and two and a half hour drive to get to area x from his cabin 12 miles away wow yeah but but something Something actually came up behind the cabin while this transmitter was on it. Some people have said, well, maybe it's a bear. I mean, some of this time would have been during the winter. So it'd be unusual if a bear was be walking around that much. Usual. It wouldn't be unheard of, obviously, for bears, especially in Oklahoma, to be out during hibernation time. But it, it would be very unusual. And also the range in which this thing was moving is pretty crazy. So, yeah, that's the other thing that, that is very curious. And they did manage, after this thing dropped the transmitter, they did manage to find the transmitter. So I don't know if there's plans. I'm assuming there's plans to try and, you know, get the DNA off yeah. of it if there's any. Well, um, but, and that was a while ago, right? I, I, yeah, it's well, it's been in the last, yeah, I guess it's probably been two years now. Yeah. I'm so out of the loop on, like, what's going on in Bigfoot land that I knew, yeah. I was aware of Tag 7, obviously. But it was, I think it has been like two years. Yeah, I feel like they wrapped up in 16 or 17, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Okay, so you've already led into it, but tell us a little bit about what is so special about Area X and the research that was done there. So I've always battled my skepticism because I find myself getting very frequently to, to the point where you're you're basically writing off the idea that Bigfoot could exist because, you know, I have all the typical skeptical questions that every other skeptic asks, why don't we have a body and, you know, why isn't there better video and all that kind of stuff. But there's always been like this one thing uh, that tends to keep me somewhat invested in the, in the subject and that has always been the activity going on in Area X in the Wachita Mountains. I learned about the Wachitas and about Area X through Brian Brown, who used to host the Bigfoot Show, which was a hilarious podcast. And I think you can still listen to their backlog of shows, but it was it was like a very funny show that occasionally got more real about the Bigfoot subject than probably any any other form of entertainment. Like that was the first time I can really remember, you know, being I, th listening to that show and Brian recounting what was going on in area X was the first time I think I ever really looked at what 
these things would be like, how they would function, how they would behave if they were real. I think up until I listened to Brian talk about it, it was always just like kind of a modern myth or something like that. So anyway, Brian was you know, operating out of Area X. He's in the NAWAC, the North American Wood Ape Conservancy. And uh, I'd been hitting him up for like four years to go into Area X. One of the reasons I wanted to go in so bad is because they've had such a wide range of documented, you know, activity, everything from like rock throwing to obviously all the different noises you hear when you're like a Bigfoot hunter and you're looking for Bigfoot in the woods. And then sightings, like many of the people that have been in there, in Area X have had sightings. So I really wanted to document the activity that was going on inside Area X. And so, yeah, after four years of asking Brian if I can make something, you know, some sort of documentary about it, they agreed to let me do an episode of On the Trail of Bigfoot inside Area X. So last June, I actually went in there with Adam Dugan for two and a half days um, that we were in there. That's it. Like we weren't in there very long. That time of year. So I was going to ask about that. I, I wasn't sure when you guys were in there. So it was June. Are there different times of year that they have seen increases in activity? Like that was that a high point typically or? I mean, I think any time from like June to early September is pretty active. I, I do know once the leaf canopy starts coming down or coming in, depending on when you're in there, there's less activity. So like during the fall, there's usually not as much going on. Interesting. You know, like I went in in June because I had a window where I could shoot. <laughs> you know, like take a couple days and go in there and shoot. And it just happened to be in June. It turned out to be probably the most miserable time I could have gone because of the heat and yeah. I had migraines the whole time. Oh, God. But we had a lot of really cool you gotta stuff. You got to get those oh, migraines you, handled, man. I was going to say, you guys have experienced me with my That's awful. My, uh, headaches. Yeah. Man. Yeah. Being in the field with a migraine just sounds like a freaking nightmare to me. It, it was not fun. And and I mean, that, that was why I was so frustrated when what happened on the last night happened was I was actually like just falling asleep with a migraine when that stupid ape threw the, the rock at the roof of the hooch. And woke me up. Which, hold on just a second. Did you hear what he just said, Byron? Did you hear that? Yeah. He is admitting that he actually had an experience where an ape-like creature in the woods threw a rock at the building he was in. See, a perceived. I don't know what it, I don't nice know try. What it was. You said it, it's like and it's recorded. If you eliminate the, the possible suspects, there's only so many things in the woods that can throw rocks and scream like the scream I heard. So you come down to like either people or an ape. And uh, unfortunately, where we are, people do not stand a very good chance of managing to survive. Yes, very true. That's a perfect lead into what I really want to ask about, which is, okay, Seth, tell us about what you experienced, what was going through your head when you had these very personal experiences in the show, whether your opinion in that moment has changed since. So there's there were multiple things that happened, a bunch that obviously isn't even going to make it into the episode because there was there there was activity almost instantly from the time we got in there. There's a scene in episode five where Daryl's on the walkie talkie, like radioing in that he's scoping in a Bigfoot, like he's looking at a Bigfoot through his rifle scope. That happened within three hours of getting out of the truck inside X. Like we had just gotten in there when that happened. And Daryl's not crazy. Daryl is to be believed. Daryl's like the most legit. Yeah. Daryl's Daryl's not the least bit crazy. Uh, and he's a very uh, skilled outdoorsman and hunter and, and all that kind of stuff. So if he says he's looking at a Bigfoot, he's looking yeah. at a Bigfoot. Just really yeah. driving this home for Byron here and for Sam when he hears it. But 
Okay. I mean, that that was my introduction to X. It's like within three hours, that's what's happening. And it went on for like another two hours or something after his first radio. You so know, it was, it was a long period of time where that was going on. And and while that was happening, we were hearing noise. Like I was, I was off somewhere else in the woods with Brian and Adam, but we were hearing like tree knocks and stuff. And keep in mind, like I've never experienced any of that. I've, I've filmed around the country in places that are supposedly active and I've never heard what was like clearly tree knocking. I've never clearly heard some, some very strange sort of noises, you know, like thumps and stuff like that in the woods that shouldn't be there. We were hearing those things within three hours. Like I heard tree knocks and we heard what sounded like limbs snapping off in another direction. And keep in mind too, I should probably set up, it's a nine mile drive from the nearest paved road back into area X. Once you leave the paved road, you travel that nine miles in two hours, two and a half hours. So it is not a place where people can just travel into. The vehicles that take us down in there are all, you know, jacked up four wheel drive pickup trucks. And even then Alton was scraping the bottom of his on the drive in. Uh, the other thing is like everyone in the group is armed. I had always harbored some sort of thought that maybe this was all a hoax, that someone was hoaxing the NAWAC until I got in there. Right. And the second you're in there, it becomes the most ludicrous idea because you would have to be the most committed hoaxer. You would be living in the woods, you know, directly behind the cabin. You would be risking life not only against the guns that they have, but also against the numerous animals that are in there that just want to kill everyone. So, so it's just not a place where you can go into and hoax people. I'm done with that entire hoaxing line of thought. It just doesn't work. It doesn't hold any water. Like once you're in there. So, you know, almost instantly upon getting in there, we're, we're having activity. We have activity all on and off all day. I always say this when, when you go out in the woods in Ohio or Pennsylvania or these other places, like you have to train your senses to like look for things and hear things, you know, you're trying in X it's different. You you actually get to the point where you turn it off because otherwise like you're constantly hearing and seeing things that are weird. You literally get to a point where you're like, okay, I'm shutting it down because I don't care. Like I've got, I've got to relax at some point. So that was like almost constant, you know, like we heard the most clear tree knock I've ever heard the one day walking out of camp. I mean, we had just rounded the bend and just walked out of camp and up the road and something just very clearly like crack, you know, wood on wood, something very loudly doing a tree knock. A short time after that, we heard what sounded like a man and a woman talking in the road behind us. It was not Bob and Kathy and it wasn't us. So you know, like it was some sort of speech that was happening in the road between us and the camp, uh, you know, just a few hundred yards back. I heard a very distant what sounded almost exactly like the Ohio howl. Oh, God. Uh, um, so there was all sorts of stuff, you know, going on while we were in there. And then we got to, you know, the eye shine, which is actually the first night, not the same night as the howl. I oh, think I'm trying. OK, it's not very clearly. So that was one thing about that episode that I wish I had done is I wish I had actually shot myself in that episode, not shot myself. In I know episode, what you mean. But put, yeah. put myself in the episode. But at that time, back in June, I had no intention of appearing in the series. So that's why I don't actually appear in that oh. one episode. So yeah, if I had been in it, I probably could have clearly explained everything very easily right then. But yeah, the timing of that event, the Eyeshine event is, I believe that was the night before. So it was the first night and then the howls the second night. So the first night we were sitting in the dark in x 
at night they turn off all the lights there's no fire you just sit in complete darkness the leaf canopy is so thick you can't really see the stars overhead you can see stars through the leaf canopy directly overhead but that's about it and we've actually gone back to see what the moon was at that point and it was just a waxing crescent moon at 20 percent light so there was there was almost no light in there and so you can see your hand in front of your face and i was sitting in the dark and i noticed these two green pinpoints of light on the hill beside me how far away give us an estimate I think I, I, Daryl has it pretty well figured. I think I think he said like twenty yards. Yeah, that sounds that, right. It wasn't that far away, but we're sitting there. We're so we're sitting there, and I'm I'm looking at these lights. And the thing is, you're trying to. I was trying to figure out if I was seeing stars because again, like you could see stars through the leaf canopy directly overhead. And I thought maybe I was looking up the hill, beyond the hill, over the tree, you know, the leaf canopy. So I continued watching these things for like three minutes. And what was real strange was to me, they, they were, they were very slightly moving, like slightly shifting around. So then I started wondering, am I looking at fireflies? Cause there were, you know, there were fireflies in there. Okay. They were still enough that that didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I continued looking at them for probably three minutes. We're just staring at each other. Finally, I was like, Daryl, can you get up and come over here? So Daryl comes over and I had to guide his head with my hand because he can't see where I'm looking. You know, like I'm like, okay, I'm looking right there. I guide his head to like the general area where I'm kind of looking. And as soon as he hits it, he goes, oh, yeah, there's two eyes. And so for some reason, like Brian freaked out and turned his light on. And as soon as he turned his light on, those eyes went sideways across the hill while still staring at us, which is one of the creepiest things I've ever seen. Like there was no, there was no bobbing up and down running or noise. They just moved sideways across the hill while still looking at us. And, and they were gone. Right. That was the first night, you know, like there's, there's any number of things that could have been obviously really like what, but, well, like uh, there's, they know that there was a mountain lion on that hill. I do not believe mountain lions have green eye shine. I could be wrong. I know deer have green eye shine. The problem with the eye shine thing is that there there was no light. Like there's no light. There's nothing. Right. There's no light for this thing to be reflecting. That's what's so strange about right. it. Right. Which you have to admit sounds a little paranormally. I mean, if you want to go there, but I I also think you could. There's there's probably some what's really interesting is on the NAWAC member forum they've been sort of going back and forth on this and they've got some really interesting theories about what might have actually been causing the eye shine and things like that that are believable you know like natural explanations for what could be happening like things like as simple as like how how a an ape's eyes are set in their head closer to the front how it could be reflecting back some sort of light on the brow above. I mean it just interesting stuff okay so we experienced that that night, and then the next night is when, uh, you know, the thing happened to me, which was that day we had also experienced some weird stuff. Like there was there was a smell in the woods that kept following us around. That was really weird. Like describe a, the smell. Like a kind of like feces and sort of like horse sweat. I wouldn't say completely B.O., not completely different. Like if you've been to a, a mountain gorilla exhibit at a zoo in like yeah. July, kind of like that. I, okay. I didn't even think of that connection until this summer. I went to the zoo and we were at the mountain gorilla enclosure and um, I smelled it. I was like, holy, that is exactly what I smelled in X, which is interesting. But the I'm sure bears could probably, you know, sort of have that same smell too because – 
But anyway, that night we were, I, I turned in at like, they had call, bla- they had done call blasting and they had actually been call blasting some really creepy, like baby cries and uh, what was the other thing? Oh, Gregorian chants call blasting that stuff but nothing nothing called back there was an owl that daryl had actually called into camp and daryl and this owl were going back and forth for like three minutes like hooting back and forth which was kind of (laughs) cool but by like one o'clock i was exhausted and we had to leave the next morning i had to get to nashville because i actually had to do like a podcast interview that night and i had a meeting with adam wingard that i had to to be a part of so i was trying to get to nashville the next day plus i'd had this migraine for like three straight days and i really couldn't wait to get out of there and get back into air conditioning yeah we're in the tent it's 2 30 ish adam's asleep i was just falling asleep and i had just started to drift off when like this very clear like rock smashed into the metal roof of what they call the hooch which is like a one of those metal outbuildings like a garage that you assemble they call it the hooch it's where they keep all the supplies and stuff so this uh sounded like a gunshot like it echoed around the valley it was not a nut falling on a metal roof it it was an echo it was like you heard a gun fired and i sat straight up in bed adam sat straight up in bed we looked at each other for a second and then all of a sudden there was a really loud whoop and the whoop sounded like a, a like an Apache war whoop from a John Wayne movie. Like I always, wow. For some reason, that's what I think of. It was not a typical animal noise. It was so so powerful. Like it sounded like a person up on the hill beside our tent, you know, thirty forty yards away max. Probably actually up where the eye shine had been the night before. Wow. It was just like there was a very clear whoop, and then there was a pause. I either looked at Adam at that point and said, stuff's about to start, or I said it after the next thing happened. But then this really loud laughter started. And it was like, you know, like when I say laughter, I mean like primate laughter. Like um, I, I can't imitate it. Adam does great imitation of it. But the closest thing we were able to find to what we heard was uh, Gibbon, like uh, how, yeah. how Gibbons laugh. It was like that, but like much more powerful and loud. And it, and that went on for, you know, like 10, 15 seconds. And then it stopped and there was complete silence. We were like, okay, like this is, I honestly thought the night was about to get really interesting. Like I thought we were about to have or another rain of rocks incident or you know like something would throw a rock at our tent or so you know like i just didn't know what was about to happen so we sat there for like five ten minutes in the dark and i was not scared i was really excited i was at first angry because i had just been about to fall asleep uh and i'm kind of a grumpy old man anyway but when like the rock smashed into the roof i was actually more irritated than anything um, but, you know, we sat there in the dark and waited for something to happen. Nothing happened. Finally, Brian radios to us and he says, you know, did you guys hear that? And I p- should probably mention our tent was, you know, it wasn't far. It was like 15, 20 yards outside of base camp. But at night when you can't see five feet beyond your, yeah. I, I, you can't even see five feet when you can't see like that, that 10, 15 yards becomes like a football field length like it feels like you were in the most dangerous position in the world so like brian's up at the cabin and he radios down you know like do you guys hear that we said yeah we walked up to the cabin 
he comes out the front door with his gun and Daryl comes busting out the door behind him <laughs> with his gun. But, you know, like that was it. That was all the activity we experienced that night. Oh, you mean just a whoop and a giant thrown rock and hysterical yeah. monkey laughter? Yeah. And okay. that was so that was a point where I was like, OK, well, you know, like it, it, it wasn't until the next day when we were driving back to Nashville and we were just talking that it really hit me like that that one thing was going to move my perception of the entire subject. Because like I think at the time I was just like I still was upset that I hadn't seen anything or what, you know, like the reality of it just hadn't hit you. But by the next day I was like, oh, crap, like I've gone from 30 percent to like 80 percent. Yes. These things. Yes. So. Yes. That's what I've been waiting for. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. You have no clue how long I've been waiting for one of the people I respect in this field to actually say, yep, so that I can tell Sam and Byron, see, now you guys have to listen. Now we just need to figure out a way to get into Area X, obviously, which I'm sure is impossible. But Yeah, it's it's difficult. It took me four years of asking, and I'm a member of the NEWAC. <laughs> And I have been for five years, you know, like I'm in the group and I couldn't get in there. But it is nice that they keep it that tightly regulated because it keeps it from being something where you can easily brush it off. Like, oh, well, there are tons of people in there. It could easily be somebody sneaking back and just messing with you. I I cannot stress enough. And I understand this is the thing that everyone will go back to. But I cannot stress enough that the idea of hoaxing being the culprit here is 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 just completely absurd. It doesn't hold any water. Once you've been down the road, I, there's a guy that's in the British Special Forces that is a member of the NAWAC, and he told me the road into X, the only road that he's been on that compared to that road was a road he's been on in the Congo. It's not something you can just travel down in a car or anything like that. And even these trucks, you know, like you really have to know what you're doing. You have to maneuver very carefully down this quote-unquote road to get into X. And then once you're in there, you are going to be battling the elements to sit in the woods and be hoaxing these people multiple times per day. Oh, and the other thing is like, it's got to be people spread out all over down in, in the Valley. It can't just be like one guy. There would have to be multiple hoaxers set up, you know, in various spots all over the camp to sort of be responsible for the activity that we, even I experienced when I was in there. It's just, it's it's like one of those things. And Adam and I, the entire drive in, were joking around about how they were being hoaxed, like how this was more than likely a hoax situation. God, and then you amazing. get in there and you're like, oh, yeah, there's no way I got out of the car. So halfway into the drive, like an hour, hour and 20 minutes down this road, Alton pulled off because we had to take a break because the road, it makes you sick. Like if you get any kind of like car sickness or whatever, it's it's, it's a rough road. Okay. We pull off to the side of the road and I get out of the truck and the first thing I saw on this leaf dangling beside the truck was a black widow spider. Oh God. And, okay. You didn't tell me that then, part. Now I'm actually scared. Oh, and what's really funny is no one believed me. I said, there's a black widow here. And Alton's like, I don't think they're in here. He's like, we've never seen a black widow. Like, so later <laughs> that night I'm going into my tent and I see a black widow spider is outside of our tent. And this was miles from the other one, so clearly it's a second Black Widow spider. So later that night, Adam opened the tent flap, and as soon as he did, it actually, like, ninja jumped into our tent. This stupid Black Widow spider, very clear, like, hourglass, red hourglass on its back, the whole thing. And so, like, just just the rattlesnakes in that area have adapted to no longer have rattles. Oh, God. 
You're describing like Australia right now. This is sounding like Australia. I'm terrified. Yeah, there's black bear and all that kind of stuff. So it's not, you know, you guys have grizzlies where you are. But these are, you know, these are black bear and then there's hogs. And like just the idea of hoaxing being responsible is is to me more more ludicrous than these people all having some sort of mass delusion that's actually probably the most believable skeptical response except once you go in and you meet the people in the group and you're around all the people in the group and then you start experiencing things it's it it, it changes your mind god this is great for context for our listeners we've interviewed seth for years on a number of different projects and a number of different categories of high strangeness and this is the first time I have ever seen Seth cross that middle line into at least more believing than not believing. A joyful day for me. I, I mean, yeah, if I had, I wish I had seen something because like you're, you're frustratingly close, but you're not there. I wish I had seen something, but at least, you know, like you saw eyes. Yeah. But I mean, yeah, but you didn't, we don't know what those eyes were. Like at the end of the day, we don't know what they were. I, I just wish I had, you know, seen what through the rock. But I will say, like, even just experiencing what I did, you could ascribe a personality to what was doing the rock throw and the whoop. Right. And that was really interesting to me. And 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 that was most of our conversation the next day on the drive on the seven hour, eight hour drive to Nashville was about behavior, you know, like how these things might behave. And that was like where I really started thinking about on the trail of Bigfoot as being Rather than just like one of our documentaries and like a retelling of history and blah, 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 I wanted people to come away from it thinking about the subject in a way they'd never done before. So rather than, you know, and and, and I'm not saying I want to make people believe in Bigfoot. One of the coolest things I've been told so far, actually, was that there was a woman who was pretty much an ardent believer in the existence of Bigfoot. And then she watched my miniseries and now she does not believe that they exist. What? What? How does that even yeah, happen? Because it got her thinking about how big the country is and where these things would hide and all that kind of stuff. And she came away from it with too many questions that it overrode her willingness to just accept that they exist well, based off of eyewitness her, reports. Okay. Yeah. But <laughs> I, I thought that was really cool. Like, because to me, it was telling me that what I had done hopefully is succeeding because people are at least looking at, at the subject in a way they haven't before. One of the things you said that is really interesting to me is you could ascribe a personality to whatever was throwing this in having a little bit, I mean, human's probably not the right word, but a little bit more personal interaction with whatever this creature might be. What does that do to your thoughts on the idea of shooting one as evidence? You know, there are lots of Bigfoot hunters out there that literally feel like the only way it's ever going to be proven is bringing in a dead body. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I... I don't have a problem with shooting one because, you know, the the ultimate goal is to prove that they exist so you can protect the land that they live on. So this is funny, too, because I've I've never considered myself some sort of hardcore environmentalist or anything like that. I love obviously I love nature and I, I want to see these lands protected. But I've always kind of subscribed to the fact that, well, logging companies clear cut, but then they replant. Right. So, right. you know, the most traditional thing i hear these days the thing that you hear echoed and trumpeted the most is well they're they're replanting more forest than they're actually cutting down and blah 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 like there's more forest today than there was 100 years ago but then you go into one of these areas where they actually did clear cut and you see 
what they do is they replant these like non-indigenous pine trees that grow mm-hmm. super fast mm-hmm. so they can come back in in 20 years and cut it down again. Yeah. It's a friggin' farm inside of a, yeah. a natural ecosystem. Yep. And that was something that I had never really thought of. Like you wouldn't expect to have like these sort of larger scale like worldviews altered during the making of a Bigfoot documentary. But it really did. Like I thought that was stunning to me. Like the lack of animals that are in those areas with the pine tree farms and that kind of stuff. So I think there is an importance to trying to preserve the habitat that would be required for something like these creatures to exist. And there's a part where I talk about like the impact this would have on all the different facets of the world we live in today, at least in the United States. Like the logging industry and our views on biology and all that kind of stuff would change. Our views on natural history and history and all that. So I think it sucks that you would have to kill one if they exist. But I think the ultimate reward from doing it is worth the loss, I guess is what I'm saying. And also, unfortunately, they will not be accepted. This is what bugs me about the kill or no kill debate. Mm -hmm. What makes no sense to me are the people that want to prove they exist. That's what their ultimate goal is, to prove they exist, but don't agree with pro-kill. I don't think anyone either is like pro-kill. At least not that I've talked to. I'm sure there's yeah. like guys that listen to Sasquatch Chronicles who are yeah. like, ah, oh, we need to kill these things before they behead everyone. But yeah. I mean, the the people in like the NAWAC, I just took a shot at Sasquatch Chronicles, by the way. Um, I, I was down with it too. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, you know, like I'm sure, sh- none of the people in the NAWAC want to kill one. They're not like super excited about killing an animal. And, right. and once I, you know, heard the one that I heard, there's another part where the narration talks about the impact that would have on the person that actually pulls the trigger, you know? And yeah. like, I'm sure it, it's not like killing a deer where it's one of like millions. These things are probably, if they exist in a very small number that are still remaining today. So there's going to be a cost. But unfortunately, to prove them, you have to have a body. That's not up for debate. Science demands some sort of specimen yeah. for them to be proven animals. So if they exist, there's really no debate to be had. Now, people who don't care, and those people do exist, like people who don't care if we prove they're there, they know they're there, they just want to have an interaction with them. And that I I can understand that point of view. Like, okay, I, I already know they exist. I don't care if you do prove them because I've experienced it and I know they're there. And I don't think they should be shot. I get that point of view. It's the people that are like, intent on proving they exist that don't believe in killing one that make no sense. Like you're not going to prove it through DNA or through a photo or video. It's so not going to happen. based on what you've seen now that you're a fellow believer, Boy. <laughs> nope, nope, just go with it. What do you think is the best explanation for why we haven't found a body? I have no idea. That's been the thing that has bothered me since I got into it. And people say, well, I mean, I know here in Ohio, the the soil is really acidic and you can see a deer carcass disappear in like two weeks. Right. You know, there aren't, there's very few bear bodies found, you know, carcasses found in the woods. Whether or not that explains how we haven't found a body after centuries of being here, you know, like, no, I don't, I don't think that does explain it. You would think at some point one would get careless and die along a power line somewhere where someone would find it. Right. I have no idea. I've, I still have as many, if not more, questions than I did when we started filming on the Trail of Bigfoot. Yeah, there's so many questions that will always remain, I guess, until somebody brings in a body. But 
to me, just hearing your stories and especially your own personal experiences, it's really incredible because I would love to have an experience like that minus the Black Widow. I, I could deal with all the rest of it. I think hopefully people will listen to this and understand that there's a lot more going on than a person might try to brush off in hearing things like Sasquatch Chronicles. <laughs> yeah. You told us that On the Trail of UFOs is next. When is that going to be released? What's the timeline? Um, We don't have a release schedule for okay. that. It, it will be the biggest project we've ever attempted. I mean, On the Trail of Bigfoot is by far the biggest thing we've attempted it's up, huge, up yeah. till now. But yeah, On the Trail of UFOs will be much bigger than that. You know, like the budget's going to be triple, I think, what On the Trail of Bigfoot was. So it's it's going to be 2020, but when in 2020, I'm not sure. I would assume mid-summer or something like that. Like maybe it'll be the series that comes out between The Mothman Legacy and The Bell Witch. Like gotcha. it would probably come, come in between those two, I'm assuming. Okay. It's definitely not going to be March like this one was. Okay. So I would, I would assume it's going to be much later in the year, but we will not know until we get everything shot you know that could go all the way until like december of this year oh i'm so excited and i'm sorry to do this to jump back but there was one more question i really want to ask about the bigfoot experiences Mm -hmm. because obviously it's focused on american sightings the people that were here before we were uh, american indians were you able to do much in terms of investigating and hearing some of the stories that came before because one of the things that stuck out about your personal experience is the vocalization and how it sounded almost like at least you know a stereotypical Indian noise from mm-hmm. an old Western movie. Mm-hmm. I wonder if there's some kind of a, a connection there and if, if they have more explanations or if you have been able to talk in your research for On the Trail of with any of the Native peoples about that. I mean, other than, you know, like Kathy goes into some of the Native American background in episode one. Yeah, She... I mean, other than that, no. Now, that's not to say I've had discussions with Native Americans about Bigfoot right. during the premiere of Beast of Whitehall. Actually, a Native American man came up to me at the premiere and told me some really fascinating stuff about like prayer circles and Ooh. Sasquatch women that get struck by lightning and all kinds of stuff. Whoa. So I'm aware of all that and I've had discussions with Native Americans about these things. When it came to actually shooting on the trail of Bigfoot, I did not get into that yet. And I say yet because there's so much to still explore with the subject that I would, as long as on the trail of is successful enough, I mean, I would hope that at some point we could do on the trail of Sasquatch or on the trail of Bigfoot two or whatever it ends up being called, where we would hopefully get to go back and, you know, explore like Ruby Creek because that's one of my favorite Bigfoot stories, you know, native American lore and stuff pertaining to Bigfoot in a, greater context i think the native american section of episode one is like five minutes it's it's a tiny it's it's probably not even that long it's a very short period of time and i think like you said it's just a whole different tangent to go down but Mm -hmm. i've also heard in some of the research i've done that you know some of the native peoples aren't necessarily jumping up and down to talk about it because there may be reasons that you know they have kept that information quiet for a long time there could be some type of a, a protective sense for these creatures that they feel. Mm-hmm. I've, I've heard a couple of people discuss that, which I think is an interesting thing to think about too. Yeah. 
Gosh, this is so amazing. It's an important day. I cannot wait to call Sam. I'm especially going to use the uh, British Special Forces story because that's going to sell him. Anybody in the Special Forces he'll listen to. So this is great. Yeah. So we've got, let's see, this comes out on March 29th. Is that right, Seth? March 29th. Real quick. It's already available for like pre-order on DVD. It will be available on Vimeo On Demand and VidiSpace as the actual six-episode episodic miniseries. On Amazon, it is being released as two individual movies where we basically edit the first three episodes into a movie called On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Legend. Movie number two is On the Trail of Bigfoot, The Search, which is episodes four through six. They're not edited in any special way to make them into a movie. It's basically just like they're cutting from one episode into the next. So it's almost like watching the episodes back to back to back. The main reason we did that is we have not had great deal of luck with episodic content on Amazon. Amazon. So tell me, is there any extra content in the movies versus episodes or vice versa? Or is it identical? You're probably getting more in the episodes. And the episodes is how I want people to watch it. That's how I watched it. It was great. Yeah, you're going to get everything from Amazon with the exception of the beginning of episode three, which is actually just a recap of our Minerva Monster movie. But that did not make it into the Amazon cut. But there actually is a cut that is playing at Midwest Weird Fest and also the Canton Palace Theater in Ohio when we do the premiere on March 29th. It has probably like a minute and a half of extra footage in the Area X episode at the beginning that actually does show me in Area X. Oh, man. If only we had lots of frequent flyer miles to get us to the Midwest. That's awesome. I'm excited that somebody gets to see that. It's great. I know this is even further down the road, but you guys know what the on the trail of after UFOs is going to be? I can pitch some things to you, you know. Oh, we know. What is it? Are you going to tell us? I I believe that's the one after UFOs will be on the trail of the supernatural, which will be a little broader than just like, let's look at ghosts. It'll be, you know, black eyed kids and shadow people and all kinds of stuff. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I'm very excited about that. There's also I need to connect you with somebody maybe on that too um the guy that did uh oh my god byron why can i never remember this guy's name the one that did the shadow people movie that we didn't like very much but the director is really good he did room 237 yeah i love that movie rodney asher Asher. certainly wouldn't say we're friends with him but we've got some dialogue between us and obviously he's got i'm sure that's somebody you'll be talking to with shadow people oh that one scares the hell out of me Interesting. I wonder if anything's going to ever sell you as much as Bigfoot does, though. Um, I mean, I totally buy into the Flatwoods monster, but I don't think that they were claiming that they saw some sort of alien creature either. Right. Which is fair. That makes sense. So much great stuff coming from you guys. I don't know how soon this episode will be airing, but you guys have, what, three days left on the Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, yeah. It ends on Saturday. The next Kickstarter campaign for the next series, Mm -hmm. is it going to be same time of year, roughly? Just Yeah, it's always like right at the end of January or right at the beginning of February. Okay. And that one is going to be insane because it's the Mothman Legacy, the Bell Witch, on the trail of UFO but it's also the five-year anniversary of small town monsters so (gasps) 
So Sam Sheeran is creating like a special five-year anniversary poster. There's going to be a book involved, like a big coffee table book. And I mean, it's absurd to be talking about this already, but like that next year's Kickstarter, we're going to like swing for the fences. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Seth. Thanks for taking so much time. And thanks for joining the cool kids camp of those who believe in Sasquatch. This is a special, special day, Byron. Good touching me. Yep. I'm sorry. (laughs) 